Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. A little bit about your journey. Like, how did you become so fascinated with the human brain? Oh, wow. So I've always been one of those guys who sort of takes things apart and has to understand, you know, the, the reasons behind things, the shapes behind things and why they're working. And uh, when I was growing up, my, my brother experienced a brain injury, actually, and ended up having a pretty significant change in consciousness for uh, a month or two. He was in a coma. And then it took him some time to uh, sort of relearn skills, things like some language aspects, some other things. And I was, I don't know, eighth grade, which in the US, I think is around 13 years old or something when that happened. And it was very sort of illustrating, wait a minute, the small little injury, it was a very small part of his brain that was sort of damaged, creates a massive shift in how the system acts, how it acts later, how it can change its performance. And then seeing how he behaved differently with a small, you know, relatively minor brain injury, how it, it was difficult for him for a few years afterwards, um, really got me thinking about the brain. And then I ended up working in health and human services throughout college and soon after, like the, the couple of years after, and worked with really severely impaired people that had no language, were multiply disabled with uh, developmental disabilities, cerebral palsy, other movement disorders. You know, I learned several different versions of tactile sign with this population because everyone had their own like 30 or 40 signs they knew and that was it. And then I ended up getting a little frustrated working in those really acute you know, developmentally disabled environments, which were residential and just sort of caretaking roles and moved into acute crisis work and psychiatric work where, you know, again, we weren't making a lot of change, but at least people were moving through some transformations sometimes and did that work for a few years and got kind of burnt out like you do working in mental health and worked with pretty much every aspect, you know, geriatric stuff, dual diagnosis with alcohol, latency age with children, and really saw lots of different types of how we deal with mental health, how we deal with inpatient outpatient crises and wellness and things like that. 
and was getting a little nonplussed, but still trying to think about what to do next. And I got injured. I was head of sort of restraints or hands-on interventions at a really acute psych hospital and got significantly injured and couldn't do hands-on work anymore. So for a few months, I ended up acting as a case manager, but then the hospital closed and I had a pretty significant back injury. So I couldn't just go laterally to a new kind of mid-tier case manager job. I was like, okay, hey, I've heard about this stuff called neurofeedback. I've wanted to get into it for a while. Let me find a place doing it. Oh, hey, there's a place right here, you know, half an hour away that does neurofeedback. And they do mostly autism, ADHD work. And I have lots of experience with, you know, developmental population. Let me go talk to them. Walked out with a job, started working with neurofeedback in Providence, Rhode Island, at a place called the Neurodevelopment Center, which is still there. Really amazing focus on developing brains with that sort of wide swath of everything that fits under the autism label, as well as ADHD and other things that are sort of undefined developmental challenges. And I started working at this place, having a pretty good experience with this population across different aspects of it. And I started seeing people change. I was seeing ADHD symptoms go away. I was seeing sensory issues drop away in autism. I was seeing seizures go away. And a lot of the time in the matter of weeks and months, and was like, wait a minute, this does not track with what I understand to be true about how the brain works, how suffering works, how we can work with suffering, what's going on. And this isn't medication. There was no like, got to get it right, or we can't help. And then even with meds, there wasn't this like intervention landscape where you tolerated stuff. There was a landscape of agency being created for these people. And so that's what really caught my attention. And after a couple of years of doing that work and seeing these kinds of transformations, 60, 70, 80% of the time, and some of the most acutely suffering people that I'd met, I was really hooked. And this was 20 you know, years ago or something. And my experience at the time was that the field had two or three or four different fields. No one knew how neurofeedback worked. Everything was really vitriolic. Everyone was in conflict and fighting. And everyone was sure they knew how it worked and hating everyone else in the small little field who, who like disagreed with their particular methodology. And yet everyone in the field was getting better results in most things than traditional mental health was dramatically better in ADHD and seizures and autism, no matter which different style of neurofeedback that invested in. That was sort of, that was, uh, it struck me as what I call a blind men and elephant situation. You know, we all have a piece of the puzzle and we're like, oh, I have a snake, I have a leaf, elephant. And that got me a little bit curious. And so I went back to grad school at UCLA and got a PhD studying neurofeedback, studying how attention works in each hemisphere of the brain separately, how you create the attentional systems and then merge them at the last moment to create the experience of attention and how you control it. So lateralized tension, hemispheric stuff. I worked with a guy named Dr. Aran Zidel, who died last year or year before last. The pandemic has left my time sense really blurry. And uh, Dr. Zidel was one of the grad students who did a lot of the work with Drs. Sperry and I think Bogan, who did the split brain research on the initial epilepsy subjects back in the 60s and 70s and things. So that's the sort of scientific or academic lineage I come out of testing the individual hemispheres of the brain. And we worked with some of the last split brain subjects from those initial experiments as they hit their seventies and eighties and things. We would travel around the U S and do brain maps on them and measure their EEG and measure their attention. And Dr. Zidel developed a style of testing the attention in each hemisphere on people with split brains with the corpus callosum severed. So you couldn't transfer information between the cortices and then took that system of assessing attention 
and moved into normally intact brains like you and I probably are and uh, was able to demonstrate you can test attention or you can uh, measure the, the independent attention systems in each hemisphere. Mm. So I came back into neurofeedback with this new perspective on the lateralization, the shared left and right you know, resource management of the brain. And as I got that perspective, I realized a lot of how I'd been trained to do neurofeedback had taken some of those brain deep laterality things into account. So that combined with doing some work on my PhD dissertation was looking at how the brain responds to the process of neurofeedback, what's happening in the real time. So the way neurofeedback works is most of it, there's different styles, but most of it is passive, involuntary, operant conditioning. So I measure your brain moment to moment, Lucas, measure some beta waves over the right-hand side, which is involved with knowing if you're paying attention, let's say. So measure some beta waves, which is like a little bit of an activation measure some theta, which is a disinhibition of that tissue or it doesn't want to do its job properly. And you measure those things moment to moment. And whenever the brain happens to move a little bit in the right direction, you applaud it by making a stimulus happen. And when the brain moves in the wrong direction, you withhold the stimulus. The brain's like, hey, I like stuff. Where'd, where'd that stuff go? And then it happens to move in the right direction and you applaud it again. It's like, oh, hey, wait, wow, cool. I dropped my theta, stuff's happening, interesting. The mind has no idea why the car is moving or the Pac-Man stopped, whatever, because the mind can't feel your brainwave to a large extent. But the brain's like, oh, hey, oh, hey, oh, hey, whenever the theta gets applauded. And so later on that day or the next day, the brain reaches for low theta states and the mind's like, ooh, I feel focused. If you ask your kid to take the trash out the next day, when they have a theta dipping, they get up and take the trash out. We get frantic calls. My kid got up and cooked for themselves or like did the laundry. It was weird. So organization happens as you learn to suppress this, this right-sided theta. And I studied in my PhD program, essentially the beep or the car moving or whatever the stimulus is that's applauding the event, what's happening at the moment, the brain's getting applauded. And I found... Well, A, we did one of the first double-blind placebo-controlled research studies ever for neurofeedback, which it's been really hard to do. You can't blind EEG. If you move, you see the signals move. You cough, you see it move. But the developer of the software, Eager, called Howard Lightstone, Howard developed a really elegant way of doing blinding where you take stored segments of EEG. They're not the person's. You stitch them together. You scale them up. You blend them with the person's EEG for display on the screen. So the clinician and the person are seeing EEG. And if they move or cough, the artifact gets carried through to the training screens. So it stops the training, but all the training parameters, how much alpha, beta, et cetera, have no contingency. So they're not, you know, re rewarding anything. And we did a double blind study and showed that the brain right after you go beep or move the thing in the frequency you're responding to, the brain desynchronizes suddenly as a burst of that frequency right afterwards. So we were showing the brain binding to the event, the learning process happening in a double-blind, placebo-controlled way. And I did that research in 2010 and published it in 2012. And wow. that was the first double-blind, placebo-controlled research that exists. Really young, kind of niche mad science-y field, essentially. You know, only, was that uh, 10 years ago, essentially? We had some of the first real good research. But people often ask why the research is flaky for neurofeedback, and it is. And there's a bunch of reasons for that. The blinding of it is just a recent thing we've solved, but how do you do personal training in a big research study? How do you test something that's different for everyone? It's individualized, it's iterative, you know? So that's a big piece of it. And these days, someone has to spend about 5 million US to do a high level FDA level study that's gold standard 
and no one owns neurofeedback. And the drug companies have been actively advocating against neurofeedback, not supporting it for 50 years. So it remains a bit of a black art and people have to get into it. And we decided to take this role at Big Brain of being trainers about the tech, about the tech, how to use mapping, how to push your brain around. Because personal trainers educate you and guide you through your path and you make the meaning and you find the results. Doctors have to have the right answer. And mm. so we took this out of the medical place and put it more in the, all right, it's your brain. Let's figure out how to iterate through workouts and see what you like and refine that, that perspective. So no, it's incredible stuff, Andrew. And I wasn't aware that you were the very first to help publish that, that paper, that double blind placebo. Yeah, control. Well, my dissertation work, which you can find, I mean, publish is a strong uh, statement because it's just the dissertation registration, you know, but yeah, those count. So if you Google my name and UCLA or PhD, you can find the publication. And we did a bunch of things, including Dr. Zidell's lateralized attention network task, looking at hemispheric attention. We trained people's brains five days in a row. And we put on top of the training wires, a full 64 hip channel cap. And we measured the evoked potentials, the, the little blips that show up in the brain in response to all the information flow. And then toward all part, looking for where things were changing in each group we trained. So left hemisphere, right hemisphere, betas versus faster betas and then sham versus real and kind of teased out, oh, wait, look at that. That's how the brain knows something's happening. That's how it's you know, recognizing the, the loop of information. One thing that um, strikes me, Andrew, is like, what's the link between like neurofeedback and building self-awareness as the individual? Because I realize as a biohacker or just somebody trying to optimize health, like having a really high level of self-awareness is going to be highly beneficial. So like, what's the link there between self-awareness and neurofeedback? I would say there's probably two pieces where there's a lot of good inflection there. One is in the brain mapping, the QEEG. I can show you your brain at rest. And I don't know what it means for you necessarily, but I know what it means in general for most people. And it's plausible. And I can measure your attention and tell you what that does mean on a performance test. Those two bits of information operate very much like a lipid panel or you know expanded blood panel as you learn your own physiology and what works for you. I mean, Take this out of the brain for a minute. If I gave you the keto guru rules, they might work for you. But if I gave you a acetone meter for your breath and taught you how to hack your generated ketones the second day and played with macronutrient you know, numbers, you might discover you could have 100 grams of carbs a day and remain in ketosis. So the QEG can help you unpack things about your brain. You can go, oh, I have lots of resting alpha. I might be a little inattentive. Oh yeah, that tracks. And then meditate more to reduce that. Or maybe you want to go through brain mapping the QEG and examine your brain under clean caffeine, cannabis, Adderall, modafinil, paracetam, or different racetams. It gives you this immediate, you can see all the brainwave shift, the speeds and the amplitudes, and you can compare that to the attention test you've done alongside that and get a valid read of, here's my performance shift in this nootropic. Here's my physiology change, which we think might mean X. Oh yeah, that tracks. Like what if your alpha speed, the, the, the resting idle of your brain is alpha waves. It's about 10 Hertz, about 10 cycles per second. If that's normally 10 Hertz and you get 10, 20 years older and it slows down a little bit, that feels like you're driving your car with the emergency brake on. And people who are above 30 or 35 will have word finding issues and tip of the tongue and short-term memory problems. And they're often concerned that it's memory, but it's not It's speed of processing. It's load time in and out of the memory. So look at your brain, your alpha waves at rest and go, Lucas, your, your alpha waves are running a standard deviation on the bell curve slower than most guys your age. And you're like, yeah, I'm having word finding issues. Okay. 
And then you can do a bunch of maps and go, wow, Prastam gives me verbal fluency. And look, oh, well, your alpha sped up by a full hertz on Prastam. Nice. Well, now you know. So that's the first answer is you can demystify the stuff that people like you and I tend to do, just self-experimentation and reading and research. We're, we're very intellectual for a while. And then we jump off the deep end and try stuff, you know, good and bad. You, I'm sure you and I actually know, I won't disclose our dirty laundry, so to speak, but I know both you and I both had amazing, interesting experiences and have run afoul of self-experimentation pitfalls here and there, side effects we didn't like and weird things that happened. So this can be a buffer to that, just turn the pure data side. And then the other piece of it is neurofeedback. One of the big benefits for people is a technique in neurofeedback called alpha-theta. And alpha-theta is flow state. It's generative access. It's wellsprings of consciousness. It's nonlinear awareness. It's insight. And it's the moment of falling asleep at night when you solve world hunger or have the best book idea or the best podcast idea, you know? It's, oh my God, I got to do this. And you fall asleep and you're like, wait, I was last night. Oh, wait a minute. That was a really good idea. That's a flow state, a generative access state when you move out of linear modes. And alpha, theta neurofeedback can reliably train that state to be right there, to open the door and reach for it, pull it into your mind. So it gives you some things. It gives you the ability to put your emotions into words really easily. So if you're alexithymic, if you can't describe what you're feeling, it cracks open that barrier. So suddenly you can describe anything you want deeply. It also has the capacity of taking chronically burnt out, shaky, overactivated alcoholics who can't fall asleep, can't calm down without a drink. And it reeducates the GABAergic tone in a few weeks. So the person can just fall asleep at will, remain calm, not be uncomfortable with their internal environment. So that, that you know, GABA and glutamate are the two primary uh, inhibitory and excitatory neurotransmitters. All the rest do different things. You have a very sophisticated audience. So you guys all know this, but glutamate and GABA have to be somewhat balanced. Then if you have too much glutamate, you develop seizures. Too much GABA, you pass out. Think about alcohol. You drink alcohol, you pass out. If you're drinking alcohol all the time and you withdraw it, you have seizures. That's the, that's the glutamate GABA thing. So you can train someone with alpha theta and they get the internal downshift into a calm, okay, low-key, settled state. But they also get the physiological state of reduced shaky activation, turning the mind off, better sleep regulation. So that's alpha theta. You also get T-cell boosts, oddly enough. CD4 plus cells go way, way up, way up. Dr. Gary Schumer did a study in the 80s on HV positive men before there were any treatments and did three groups, cranial electrostim, neurofeedback, alpha training, and both. Both groups that had neurofeedback had massive CD4 plus cell increases over a few weeks. Whoa. It was really quite dramatic. And I've seen that in my clients as well. I've seen T-cell, massive T-cell improvement sometimes from alpha-theta. And alpha-theta is the basis behind things like 40 Years of Zen and James Hart's BioCybernaut program. And those are one-week programs to drop you into what I consider an ordeal style of neurofeedback, a shamanic event style of neurofeedback, doing a sweat lodge version of it. Yep, you can get something out of it, but it doesn't make iterative change. It might just break you free of your shapes if you're stuck. I'd rather use those tools like alpha-theta systematically, progressively, build a foundation and resources with other stuff, do some flow state work, creativity work on top of that. But along with it, answer, this is how we get into uh, the neurofeedback process. Yeah, no, that's really, really amazing. As part of that, Andrew, I'm curious to know, you mentioned autism, ADHD, and also desired flow state. What are some of the other applications for neurofeedback? 
two other ones that are pretty big, that are pretty sort of low hanging fruit and obvious. I mean, the field of neurofeedback developed because we discovered by mistake that it reduces seizures dramatically. Dr. Barry Sturman in the late sixties was doing an experiment with rocket fuel and found that of the 32 cats he was using, a quarter of them refused to have seizures when exposed to rocket fuel. This is the sixties, you know, animal research. And he realized later on that those same super cats who had super stable brains had done a previous experiment six months before to see if you could make a brainwave rise by rewarding it with chicken broth whenever it showed up. And cats make a lot of this brainwave. You've seen a cat in a windowsill, the liquid body and laser-like focus. That's a brainwave state called sensory motor rhythm. Humans use it to sit still, stay asleep, suppress impulsivity, suppress seizures. It's an inhibitory tone. It's also called sleep spindles. It's used for learning consolidation. It's used for lots of stuff. The lack of it in humans, we call ADHD. Whoa. So literally the calm cat on the windowsill and the ADHD kid who can't sit still, literally opposite regulatory styles in the brain. So SMR can be trained up and you can go after it. So seizures, if you will, and that sort of brain thing is a big use of it historically. I will say that, you know, aside from the peak performance stuff and the attention stuff, two big areas become a lot of our sort of goal space for clients as they elect them and go after them. One of them is different flavors of anxiety. And the other is brain fog, especially these days with COVID brain fog and stuff. So anxiety is an interesting phenomenon. I'll talk about first, just because anxiety is not really a disease. It's natural circuits that are cramped up. So anxiety is closer to a spasmed muscle for most people, even when severe, even when it's PTSD or OCD or something, it's not a disease process really for most people. It's like having like example in the brain mappings, again, example how the brain mapping gives you insight and helps you understand yourself. Let's say you're a little obsessive. You can't stop thinking about stuff. You get songs in your head. You bite your nails, but you're also kind of high powered and a bit of a CEO. Well, looking at your brain map, you're going to see the front midline of your brain. The anterior cingulate is making lots of beta waves. Probably it selects what you're thinking about as part of the brain. And if it gets strong, we hyper select, which can be OCD. If it's in your way, if your thoughts are having you, or it can be a CEO. If you're highly useful or, or skillful at using this little resource. Same thing, the back midline, posterior cingulate. That's the, oh, watch the road, part of the brain. Or catch the Frisbee. Hey, Lucas, heads up. Oh, orient, you know, uh, alert and orient. That's the posterior cingulate. Well, if your brain learns the world is not especially safe or predictable, it cramps up and your brain is now evaluating for danger all the time. But that's metaphorically a lot like the lower back spasming up in a car accident so you can walk away. Mm-hmm. 10 years later, kind of sore didn't quite regulate properly. You know, you can stretch it out. You can get it back in shape. Just like your posterior cingulate, if you're experiencing PTSD or threat sensitivity or rumination or something, you can work it out. You can stretch it out. Or you got the right TPJ for social and sensory loading. You see in autism as well as like quirky people that have social anxiety, the right temporal parietal areas like, ah, the world's so loud that my, my, my wife's chewing is so annoying. You know, or you can see sleep issues as the brain makes lots of Delta because you aren't sleeping. Or I mentioned alpha waves earlier, if I'm word finding issues. And then the big one we see a lot of is brain fog these days because you get COVID and 50% of people roughly a month and a half later, the brain looks like it's had a concussion wow. and they feel like that. It's about 50%. The, the initial research in, uh, in the Lancet that came out about a year into the pandemic showed that about 50% of people with COVID symptomatic COVID have actually neurological symptoms that are significant six months later. So I find that 
I mean, I have in, in some ways the luxury of a long client base and thousands of people I've worked with. So before the pandemic, we had seen more than 5,000 people and for neurofeedback and brain mapping. And I have multiple maps on people. I see them for years sometimes because it's a relationship they have with their brain. Um, and not because they have to train their brain for years, just because we are a resource. And now people come back having new complaints and we look at their brain and we're like, oh, and they're like, yeah, I had COVID. And you see it, it looks just like a concussion. Or, and it usually, this might be interesting to folks, COVID doesn't create necessarily brand new inflammation. It seems to, in the brain, it seems to latch onto old seeds of inflammation and make them flare up. So I don't, all, I often don't see a new like, like concussive spot or a, a global metabolic dip. What I usually see is the old stuff that used to be a little bit of scar tissue or inflammation getting huge and blowing up and that, and their alpha slows down, the delta goes up, metabolism falls over. But it looks like a concussion client who's got another concussion or something, or an apnea person who got exposed to mold or mold who got Lyme. It's like a double metabolic hit kind of signature in the brain. It's not really specific. You know, it's like, wow, you got hit by something. What was it? Oh, you had COVID. Oh yeah, that's probably what this is. So again, it's a phenomenon I'm seeing that I would go, I don't know why this is here, but there's something here. And they would go, oh yeah, I know it's, you know, I got you know, hit by a surfboard. Oh, I had COVID. Oh, I slept in a moldy tent. And I've been feeling like crap for the past two weeks. Oh, okay. So when people are suffering, especially with these mysterious things like long COVID, seeing your brain, seeing that it's right there gives you a freedom, gives you some agency or showing someone that has PTSD or anxiety or you know, a quirky brain and can't process social information the same way or has tinnitus or something else, you show them on their brain and people start changing their relationship. If I showed you a separated shoulder on an x-ray, you might be frustrated at it, but you're not going to feel ashamed or be angry at it probably. But we're often that way about our brains. So if I show you your PTSD, your OCD, your ADHD, your sleep issues, your irritability, your sluggish brainwaves because you're dragging all around and you're like, there it is. And here's the bottlenecks. Here's how it's impacting you. It's not your fault. It's just your brain. And that gives you a place to apply pressure and make change. So we like to joke, we don't sell neurofeedback. We sell agency. We have big tools for doing things with neurofeedback. So people often do, but the brain mapping alone gives you this little snapshot of yourself that you can kind of dig into over time and I think it really changes our relationship with a lot of things we consider mental health and psychiatric. I mean, most flavors of anxiety, attention stuff, sleep stuff, stress, you know, general things humans suffer with, the vast majority of it, you can take out of that pathological diagnostic DSM world and put it into the world of, hey, which resources are bottlenecked? You want to work those out? See if we can get them to feel different? Great. So, you know, it, it really flips the script a little bit on the regular mental health thing, which is why we do it this way. It's incredible. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm just gobsmacked. I wasn't aware of all of this that you're mentioning there, Andrew. And as part of that, like you, you mentioned the anxiety, the different regions of the brain that you're able to sort of identify patterns, particular frequencies. What about like, as far as like mood and, and like mm. um, low mood, because I'd imagine you'd see a yeah. lot of post COVID. Great question. Mood is something you can't predict from a brain map, but if someone's got a low mood, you might see it in a brain map. Right. It's not a reliable enough thing to show up. So Richie Davidson, one of the great meditation researchers found early on, like 20, 30 years ago now, 
Now, the research is kind of a weak finding. And since then, even Richie Davidson would not necessarily say it's true. But all the initial research on people that were depressed and on meditators by him showed an asymmetry where the left frontal lobe, the front corner was more activated and the right frontal corner was less activated. So this is the approach system and this is the avoid system or the I hate things system or the get off my lawn kids system. So sometimes you see an asymmetry where the left front is making too much alpha or neutral and not enough beta, or the right front is, is making too much beta gas pedal or not enough neutral alpha. Asymmetry shifts and the right front starts to drive the bus and it finds things kind of irritating and negative and wants to take things in that negativity perspective, the negativity bias. I mean, we're evolutionarily benefited bias to attach to the negative. If you miss sexy things and yummy things and attractive things, there's more of those tomorrow. But if you miss tigers and danger, you might miss it once. Better not miss it twice because that's it. Game over. So we have a negativity bias. We attach to stuff. The right frontal lobe will lean in and go, ah, things suck really easily. And we can sometimes see that in the brain maps. And also the alpha speed slows down. The speed of processing drags down in depression a lot of the time. But having a low processing speed doesn't create depression. It just creates a low processing speed. So depression's an experience we're having. It's a high-level human thing. It's broadly cortical. It's like music. It's like thoughts. It's like memories. They're not in one place. They're everywhere. So depression, as I was saying, is more of a human experience and less of a specific resource in the brain where anxiety, you'll have individual little modules for selecting your focus, the front of that in the world, in the back, drinking in the world and mapping into the mind, sensory primary cortex and the auditory, the visual association cortex for putting things together. We have individual resources you can see, but when you use them all together for your human experience, your thoughts, your high level you know, mood and things. Those are often things you don't see on an EEG. You're seeing high level features. So while I might be able to guess there's something going on, I wouldn't know it was depression per se, where I can usually tell if someone's ruminating, perseverating, has social or sensory issues, has slowed processing, isn't getting good sleep, has attention difficulty. Those are sort of easy things to see on a map. And the good news about brain mapping is if you see it, you can change it. You know, if you use something like a SPECT or other sophisticated analysis, you may get some insight about your brain, but then what? You have to then go find ways to intervene, which are functional medicine ways. Someone does a SPECT, then they go see you and go, oh, I have this exposure, low metabolism. What can I do to boost my blood flow? And you come up with a bunch of strategies and try stuff. With EEG analysis, the QEEG, if you find things that are real, you can then go exercise the EEG. So you get an immediate actionable thing to do, or you can exercise the blood flow. We also do HEG or hemoencephalography, where you exercise the vasculature. That works pretty well for uh, COVID brain fog, by the way. Hmm. So, I'm curious to know, like, as far as some of the exercises, I know like many, many years back, I actually volunteered myself as part of a, a university student was looking at neurofeedback. And I remember one of the games that I had to play was like, I think I had to keep like a ball at a certain hmm. with my what is that H-E-E-G or something? It might be. It might be H-E-G or maybe it was SCP, slow cortical potential. It depends. If it's voluntary, it's unlikely to be oscillatory ongoing EEG because you can't control it. But if you're trying to control something, you can sort of control the big output of the frontal lobe. You can concentrate and blood flow will surge. MRI uses this. It's called the BOL, the blood oxygen level dependent response. But it's happening all the time and you can kind of use passive sensors we use one called PIR, HEG, passive infrared, hemoencephalography, just an infrared camera you strap on and point inward. 
And it's kind of like you're sitting on the beach, figuring out how active the ocean is by watching a spot on the shore. It's very indirect metabolic outflow. It's happening all the time, but you can like lean in and concentrate. And two seconds later, there's a big surge, a higher surge than usual. So you can learn semi-voluntarily. And there's some old technology that may use blood flow. I think what you were doing is called slow cortical potential training. And that means you were training below one hertz because the general DC shift or the activation of the brain, which all the other energy rides on top of, can be somewhat voluntarily controlled. And it tends to change slowly up and down over about half an hour. But you can sort of learn to control it. If you're doing a thing where you're trying to keep a ball up and down and there was wires on your head, like IE voluntary control over electricity, it must have been something like SCP. Mm -hmm. Um, Most EEG is passive and your brain gets applauded for little, you know, of the billions of things it's doing, a couple of those things are getting applauded. You can't really control that. But if you're trying to control like the broad things, the broad blood flow, the broad electrical activation, there's some voluntary control there. So that's my guess. Interesting. What about Andrew? I'd love to hear about like some incredible like success stories that you've had with maybe some clients. You want to share maybe, you know, obviously respecting their privacy, but maybe just share some, some pretty crazy transformations. Every so often people ask me this question and I'm always hesitant to start talking about stuff I see because it sounds ridiculous. I mean, most people have ridiculous transformations that are life-changing. And if you have some big major things in the way, what happens is outside of the scope of what is expected in other aspects of mental health. I mean, just ADHD stuff, you measure someone's attention on an attention test when they start and they're on a bell curve off the mean by a couple of standard deviations, you know, hundreds in the middle of a bell curve when it's age matched. And these folks come in at 60s and 70s and 30s and 20s and missing scores for aspects of attention when they they start. And they do 40 to 50 neurofeedback sessions and they're above average, 115, 120, 125 permanently in three months, 80%, 90% of people with ADHD. I mean, it's just it's insane the kind of effects we see. Or someone's coming in having seizures. Uh, we had a girl a few years ago, major developmental issues, some genetic disorder where her body didn't fold proteins properly. And she was having lots of drop seizures, was having seizures several times a minute, basically, hundreds of times an hour. And she was about 11 years old, very, very small physically because of this genetic disorder. Her parents hadn't slept in 11 years or whatever, because The girl having constant seizures meant that throughout the night, they were always afraid. They were always trying to get her to be safe. So this is a girl with a lot of difficulties. And we trained her brain. And in about three weeks, she was down to having one seizure every two hours from having dozens an hour. Now, this is a very extreme case, but just that small change was a huge success for her. And the girl had no language. But at the end of that process, she wasn't feeling tired all the time because of constantly having seizures. Her parents could sleep at night, so they weren't tired all the time. And the girl started making better eye contact and having a bit better cognition. It's a very small win cognitively, but a huge win in terms of the big suffering. You know, same thing. Someone comes in who's got some major PTSD, you know, like you read about, can't fall asleep, wakes up screaming, sweating. You train the average person with intrusive PTSD or OCD or something really extreme for three, four or five weeks. And you've pulled the teeth of most of the symptoms, not completely. And the brain still cramps up that way over time. You may need to do some more work, but the average person with PTSD will have a 
dramatic dialing down to minimum of their symptoms in a couple of months. The average person, not the outliers, and almost everyone with ADHD, and at least half of people with seizures have these sweeping kind of changes. So this is why I'm saying it's a little hesitant, like hesitant to talk about the successes because we usually see successes. And if you're someone who's extremely high performance, and you have neural problems and you feel pretty good and you train your brain, you still level up your attention. You still level up your handling of stress. You still get better deep sleep. What will happen a lot of the time for many people is the amount of hours will compress and the depth will improve. So you go from sleep in eight hours, eh, okay sleep, to six and three quarters of amazing sleep. That's cool. You know, stuff like that. Or your circadian rhythm, which never quite locks in, starts to lock in. But neurofeedback boosts BDNF and other forms of plasticity acutely for 24 hours after every session. So when you do things like neurofeedback, other stuff you're doing starts to really synergize. And people that do things like neurofeedback are often interested in making change and doing other things. So it has a rather magical reputation in fields of like physical therapy and speech and language therapy and epileptology, because those people see their clients go and find a neurofeedback person and suddenly start making changes. So, or alcohol, Doug Quirk did a lot of work initially, uh, Penniston and Egner and Penniston, I think did some work on alcohol initially and showed that alpha theta used for alcohol reverses the one year relapse rate in alcohol. It goes from three quarters down to one quarter and that's across people. So this is a huge impact. It's kind of like exercise. Okay, what are you going to do with it? Well, it's not a one size fits all thing. It must be tailored. It must be focused on your goals. There's different ways to do it. So it's not trivial, but it's also not rocket surgery, so to speak. You know? Yeah. Yeah. But as far as the, um, like the frequency of sessions and like the duration of each session, I'd imagine obviously needs to be carefully tailored to the individual. So maybe do you want to sort of outline you know, let's say a typical three-month program, what might that look like? Yeah, we like to train the brain, have people train the brain about three times a week for about half an hour. But what you do in that session might be quite very different. What frequencies you're training, where in the head you're training, how many channels, if you're doing EEG or HEG or a combination. So we tend to build complicated, customized individual programs for every person and their goals, just like your coach would in the nice high-end gym. You know, it's always tailored to you. But we start off with something called the brain map or the QEG, where people will put a cap on their head and squirt it full of gel and sit still for about 10 minutes, eyes closed and open. Also do a really boring attention test and you'll hate me just a little bit after it as we bore you to tears and find out how well you can stay focused when things are not that exciting. And those three things are compared to a database, people your age, not to see why you're not average, but to find the interesting shapes of your performance and make some models about where there's stuff you might want to change. Then we go after the neurofeedback and we teach you how to do it. A lot of our clients work remotely. We have many offices now in the US and some partners overseas, but most of our clients never see offices. We send brain mapping gear out. We send neurofeedback training gear out. All the coaches work privately with you on a private chat. So we have this 24-hour, seven-day-a-week, well, it's not 24-hour, seven-day-a-week Slack channel system set up. So you have your own private system for getting help with your coaches and taking photographs of your head and asking for more protocols. And we also use that same Slack channel to bug you to fill out your sleep surveys and stuff like that. But it's very iterative where we, you try something, it's mostly involuntary. Your brain goes, oh, hey, wait, I noticed something later on. You feel a little bit different later on, making a note about your sleep, your stress, your attention. 
And then the coaches come to me and say, Hey, Andrew, I noticed Lucas uh, had some really great sleep after his new left side protocol. And that's set up for a repeat, but then there's nothing after that. What should we do? Oh yeah. Lucas wants to do some creativity work. So why don't you ask him if he wants to move to alpha theta and so do a one channel and two channel or see if he wants more work on that deep sleep. And if he's experiencing some pain right now, maybe give him a right set at alpha protocol. Okay, thanks. And then write out like a two-week plan from that and come to your channel and say, hey, talk to Dr. Hill. No, your sleep was good. We put a repeat of that in, put some right-sided protocols in, in case you want to do some pain work. But after that, it's the creativity stuff. Here's some new locations on the head. Here's a cheat sheet. And the staff will work to really help you learn the specifics of the thing you're trying to get done. And then we'll stand by to help you troubleshoot when you're sticking wires in your head. And then your experience is all about not stumbling through setting it up or doing it, but more like, do I notice anything? And if you don't, great. But you're probably well. Um, it's pretty subtle. And you're really kind of like an athlete going, oh, hey, wait, yeah, I know something. Feels pretty good. I like this workout. Or maybe metaphorically, you call your trainer and say, dude, I just dropped eggs all over the floor at the supermarket. What are you doing? My arms are noodles. Oh, okay, we'll take some weight off the curl bar next time. You know, it's that kind of thing. But here you might notice yourself feeling kind of wired or kind of tired or your sleep is interrupted and not better that night, or you're a little irritable or something. And then it wears off because it's a transient push. And unless you repeat it, it doesn't last. As you repeat it five, six, 10, 15 times, then it starts to last because now the brain is practicing stuff it does every day in a new way. So it tends to stick. At least the sleep, stress, attention things tend to stick pretty reliably after a few months because you're using them all the time. Yeah. So that's sort of the, the landscape as you move through a few months of iterative training, people can usually make about a couple of standard deviations of change in that kind of time frame across executive function or stress or whatever else features we're working on. We map the brain every other month. So typically in a three-month program, folks get 40 to 50 sessions of training in, and there's three brain maps, and we see a couple of standard deviations, nice linear change in their executive function. And their brain maps will have features of stress and sleep and other stuff to kind of drop away. And more importantly, the person's reporting subjective stuff all along that we're helping sort of Marco Polo into shape. Oh, your sleep did that? Try this. Okay, great. That's working for you now. Now try this. And we're just always trying to gently push the way your trainer does and listen to what your needs are and maybe give you new workouts that day based on what's happening. But then at the end of the process, you know, a few months in, you're kind of different. And people that have simple, if you will, goals for neurofeedback, things like ADHD, some anxiety, some sleep stuff, three to four months, you know, 40 to 50 sessions, permanent change for most people. Mm. You got brain injuries, you got some autism, you got an active disease process like, you know, Parkinson's or schizophrenia or something. You want to train longer, maybe ongoing for like schizophrenia or Parkinson's. For autism, people usually do about six months because they move slower and there's more to do. And for my peak performers, I have clients who've been training straight for years, who have hundreds of sessions building up and they work through some anxiety and some drinking and some coke use and some being a jerk to their wife. And they're six months in and they're feeling amazing. And they're like, what, what else you got, doc? And I'm like, oh, okay, let's start you meditating and doing some keto cycling and some fasting and go to some flow state and our feedback protocols. And we keep chipping away and they keep having these like discontinuous every so often they get next level stuff showing up as we keep working the resources out, keep trying fun things. So once your relationship with your brain starts to change, 
there's sort of no upper limit for what you can do. I mean, I don't know what the metaphor is, but you know, those gym guys who get all swole because of how easy it is sometimes for guys to get swole. That sort of happens with some of our brain clients where they've been training for years and the most relaxed and good listener and, you know, super well-adjusted people with massive immune systems and creativity. I mean, I'm joking a little bit, but if you walk into any peak brain office in the U S while the full-time long-term staff are, they're in their late twenties, thirties, they might as well be 95 year old monks. They're super good listeners. They're really calm. They're really kind. And it's the same phenomena as walking into the high-end gym and seeing all the staff's abs hanging out, you know? So it's hard to say what the process could be because it's so individualized, but people usually do three to six months, level up a bunch, work some things out, change their relationship with their brain. And then we might see them in the future for mapping or for additional challenge they have with a concussion or some COVID or something, or maybe they want to hit some more goals. So, you know, clients will work with us off and on for years, perhaps, but the thing that usually brings them in initially is pretty much addressed typically within about three to six months. So Amazing. 40 Amazing. to hundred sessions roughly. Yep. I've got two more, two more big questions. The first one is um, for you, Andrew, that's um, personal experimentation yourself. Like what's the most wild thing you've seen personally, or maybe it's a sleep experiment or maybe it's like a creativity thing. Like, yeah, I'd love to hear about what, what you've done with your own brain. Yeah. For me, the neurofeedback stuff is really where it's at. While I enjoy nootropics, while I really enjoy fasting and other kinds of experimentation, the reason I'm doing this is because I was 28 years old, you know, injured, couldn't work in a psych hospital anymore, trying to find, you know, the next thing. And I was the most ADHD person on the planet. Like I've never met a problem child who's 10 years old, who was worse than I was in my twenties. Just like I made Robin Williams look calm you know, during his Coke years, it was really bad. How hyperactive, how disinhibited, how running a million miles an hour I was even into my twenties. And then I got this job at the neurofeedback center was seeing all this stuff happen and would hang out after hours, training my brain after a few weeks. So I paid for my own brain map. We used to send them out to get processed elsewhere. And I paid for my own processing fee and got my brain map. And I wouldn't recommend doing this necessarily, but I started poking at stuff I saw on the maps and trying lots of stuff. And only about half of it actually had any guidance from my boss at the time. But I had probably two stories, things that happened to me. One is I did about 18 sessions of neurofeedback and went from the most impulsive person on the planet to basically having no ADHD in about a month and a half. And it was really, really, really subjectively just you know, life-changing in some ways. Now I could go back to grad school. Now I could think about a PhD versus an MD, because I know I could actually sustain my attention where I had been 10 years between undergrad and grad school. Cause I knew I could not get through grad school with my ADHD. So I eliminated it. It was like, Oh, Oh, wait a minute. Okay. Something's here. And I was thinking about what to do. And I was playing around, you know, for a few more months and I trained down some theta brain waves on the front midline of my head in one session. And I, in retrospect, did uh, too long a session. I pushed too hard but the next day I'm waking up and feeling like I had run a marathon. My legs were heavy. I was super tired. I like, it was like had a physiological response, you know, and didn't think much of it. It was fine the next day. Thought, okay, I did some overtraining. That was kind of weird. Not sure what happened there. And about a month later, I looked down and realized my fingernails were getting in the way of my keyboard. 
and I had to go buy nail clippers. And I'd been obsessively biting my nails since like age three or something. And I stopped biting my nails with one session of general feedback, stopped cold so thoroughly that I didn't notice that I had stopped. It just became something that was partitioned out of my behavior suddenly. And I've seen that kind of thing happen with other people, you know, obsessions and stuff or little ticks. So I had those two experiences while working as a senior tech with mostly autism. I was like, oh, okay, well, this is ridiculous. There's something here. But no one knew it. No one knew how to really navigate it. No one really deeply understood this, this mysterious thing we're doing. And while I went back to grad school to find that out, I didn't understand deeply how it works, but I did develop this perspective of trying to identify and steer phenomena from a regulatory perspective. And that's successful instead of trying necessarily to deeply understand discreetly every single thing we see, which is not really possible. That's the problem that doctors often run into, having to be right, having to get the right diagnosis, the right medication. And if you get it wrong, it can cause harm. And your coach in the gym is less likely to cause harm getting the imperfect chest press angle or whatever. And even your personal trainer in the OT or PT space, the medical rehab space, even that person has an iterative approach, a test and see, a try and see, a be gentle, a be very client focused, meet them where they are, move them to where they want to be. So when I opened Peak Brain, we really took that approach pretty hard and we went into the you know, personal trainer for brain stuff. And that is how the, the process tends to work. We work over a few months, clients work out some goals, and we have some fun with uh, shepherding some transformation. Incredible, incredible. Yeah. As far as like, I know we discussed offline before that you, you guys have expanded into you know, numerous locations. Do you want to let my listeners know maybe if they want to get their brain mapped, like what hmm. does that process look like? Sure. So you can come into any of the offices we have and get your brain mapped. We have several in the US plus some partner offices overseas. All your listeners get a half price sort of club fee or brain mapping fee in all the US offices, which drops it from 500 to 250 actually, FYI. And we also have remote brain mapping for clients not near an office, although it's a little more expensive than that because we're sending out brain mapping gear. And in the US, we have offices in Los Angeles and Orange County, California, St. Louis, New York City. And we can do remote mapping any place in the US. And we have remote training systems anywhere in the US for rental. So it's a pretty low problematic way to get your brain mapped no matter where you are. We also have partners in London, Hong Kong, Copenhagen, and a few other places, probably a few others opening up down near you, if I had to guess. And um, in any of those places, you can go and get your brain mapped and work with our brain mapping people and me to do the analysis and get some gear and work with us that way. So if you're not near one of our offices or in, in one of the countries we have a partner, we can also get you your own brain mapping app. We'll teach you to use it. They're a little expensive. I mean, but these days the cost of tech has come down so much that we can give people their whole entire, sell them a whole package of pretty sophisticated brain analysis, brain mapping, brain training gear, and then send it anywhere in the world. I have clients in Puerto Rico and Dubai, in Ireland. I mean, every single country I can think of, I have clients in who have their own gear. And we also have many, many clients in places like the UK and the US where we just send out rental systems. So if you're near one of our offices, then you're in luck and you can get a nice discount map and have this sort of open and ended ability to map and see what's going on. And if you're not near an office, but in one of the countries, we have rental systems, you can grab some gear with a rental, do a few maps over the weekend, do the same exploration with our coaches. 
And if you're in a different country, we can still work with you, but you may have to buy some gear instead of rent it. Mm. So Awesome. Yeah. I'll make sure to leave those, well, the relevant links in the, in the show notes. And finally, Andrew, I'd love to sort of ask you, what do you think the future holds for the whole neurofeedback space? Like what direction are you hoping to see head into? Yeah. I, I think a couple, couple of things. One of the difficulties of doing neurofeedback is the round trip. The difficulty of any coaching with sophisticated technology or sophisticated techniques where things are variable is watching what happens as it lands and steering it, be that adjusting someone's carbs or their sleep schedule or their whatever. We track a lot of information with you about what's happening, how you're moving towards your goals, what you're noticing day to day. So one thing we're doing this year is releasing an app, which is a quantified self dashboard. You'll be able to use as this like real omnibus place to track everything that you may want to watch how the variables interact. So how your sleep and stress and meditation and diet are affecting your speed of processing and whatever else. So we're developing this dashboard that should let us move the field of neurofeedback a little bit out of this recipe book slash science iterative, but it takes a bit of a black art gift in some ways to walk through brain data and pick brain things. It takes years of training. You can't just grab a brain map and start training stuff you see. You have to understand how the brain works. And even that isn't uh, ironclad because people are weird. You know, it's the process is very iterative. And what I'd like to do is to move the need for the skilled clinician out of the picture by first replicating those kinds of skilled decisions with lots of our coaches and other people's coaches in this kind of app interface, and then start mining the app for predictive stuff. And eventually the apps can become our sort of health avatars and we'll be able to do tests on them and say, oh, if I threw this nootropic at myself, what would it do? Oh, my model says, I don't like paracetam. I probably shouldn't take it. You know, and then you can do testing things where your model can say, hey, look, based on the amount of sleep you're getting, if you keep doing this for a week, you're going to be in trouble. And so that's where I think we're going is this predictive, reflective thing where we can almost have intelligent agents that are predictive health avatars. I think that's probably where we're going in the, mental, in the, in the health space in general. Mm. Yeah, that's amazing. It's amazing. I know at the start you said it was like giving people the agency and empowering the consumer, the customer, which is an incredible mission. And I really, really respect what you're doing, Andrew. And I'm looking forward to staying in touch and I'll have to organize myself a brain map. I mean, I'm as I said before, I'm heading to Europe. You see, you mentioned oh, you got a place in Copenhagen. So maybe I'll yeah. stop by there, but... Yeah, we'll get you in Copenhagen or London, or we have a partner who's coming back. She'll be in Sydney soon. I know you're not super near to there. Uh, you can pop over to Wellington if you want to see New Zealand on a lesson you're there, but you guys are in a, in a bubble, right? In the quarantine, it's, it's one, Oceania is one bubble, right? You'll, you'll allow cross travel, I think. Yeah. So, but no, you're more than welcome. Or if you want to grab your own amp, we'll send you one down under and you can do you can do mapping from there for your clients or something so awesome awesome well andrew thank you so much for coming on the show man it's been an absolute pleasure and i'm yeah really excited to dive into this space more so myself and i may have to get you back on for another podcast in the future as well happy to lucas thanks so much for having me it's been a blast talking to you today. awesome hey it's Paige desorbo from giggly squad high quality fashion without the price tag say hello to quince i'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters sleek leather jackets fine jewelry and so much more with quince being 50 to 80 percent less than similar brands and they partner with factories that prioritize safe ethical and responsible manufacturing i love that 
Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.